to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in this episode, we'd like to discuss the Australian Open, which just wrapped up. Um, we had Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic as the winners, as the champions. Um, and we'd like to dive in first to the women's tournament. Um, Brian, I know you have a few quotes that uh, will we'll get our conversation started. Um, but again, we see Naomi Osaka as, as the champion. Uh, she's now 4-0 in finals, um, having uh, a very impressive record, even if the, the actual quality of the, the final at times wasn't, wasn't the highest level. Um, I know um, what, one thing I'd, I'd like to add right away is from hearing her press conference after, after the final, where she acknowledged that she, that she was feeling nervous beforehand. And they, they asked her, why, why do you feel nervous? Where Jennifer Brady, it's her first final. Um, where is that coming from? She said, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not sure. It matters. It matters a lot to me. Um, it's, I view it as a great opportunity. Um, and I was feeling nervous. So she said, you know, I, I was feeling nervous. I knew maybe I wasn't going to play my best tennis, but reminded herself that, uh, the other player, the, her opponent, Brady, would also be nervous and that she just had to try to, you know, do what she could, point in, point out, and not focus too much about the result, which I think is a is a great mindset. So just wanted to throw that in in the beginning. But, Brian, I think you have a few, uh, few quotes to get us started. Yeah, although I would like to hit on what you just said, Josh, because it, it's it very reminiscent of um, Igish Fiontek and keep expectations low and standards high. So, and maybe in this case, it was more about keeping expectations realistic. I may not play well. And that's sometimes an expectation that tennis players bring to matches that isn't always fulfilled and that can become problematic. I also think, you know, the question about, well, why are you nervous? Because it's, you know, Brady's first final is a little bit, not that it isn't fair, but isn't quite um, complete in that it's not a binary thing. Like, oh. She's nervous, therefore I'm not. Um, and and as you as you said, you know Osaka, it's important to her. And and you know one of the quotes that I wanted to discuss was w- with respect to that. So she said, um, and I think this would be a great one for us to discuss. Her approach to finals was this: I have this mentality that people don't remember the runners up. I fight the hardest in the finals. I think that's where you sort of set yourself part. And I think it's a really good perspective. Not necessarily that people don't remember the runners up or like there's anything bad about being a runner up in a, in a tournament because obviously it's a great accomplishment. And, and for someone like Jennifer Brady, it's, it's a step for her, you know, on, on hopefully we see her on this stage much more often. Um, but the idea of fighting the hardest in the finals is really, I, I think a great, perspective because um how might other players look at it they may be thinking about um how that perhaps will fail on this big stage or they don't want to lose or they don't want to play badly etc they might be thinking about again expectations what will everybody think if this this type of thing happens but you can really start to put that behind you when you have this attitude of hey this is the finals this is the time to fight the hardest. This is the time to set myself apart. And what have we seen now with Naomi Saka? She's 4-0 in her first four Grand Slam finals, equaling a record only held by Monica Seles and Roger Federer, um, which is – that's impressive company. And she actually 
recognized that that's impressive company. Yeah, I mean, very, very impressive company for for sure. Um, I think her that that quote that you bring up to to me reminds me a lot of uh, the famous Billie Jean King quote: "The pressure is a privilege." Yeah. Right where. Um, there's, I guess there's, there's two ways you can view this moment. You're in the final, either you're going to lean in and really relish the moment, relish this opportunity, um, view it as a privilege to be there, um, and view it as a chance to really showcase your skill set and, you know, a great opportunity to win another grand slam or back away from it and then say, you know, what if I lose here? What is everybody going to think? Um, or, you know, that would be so disappointing. That would be such a big upset. So, um, to, to me, I, I think her four and record demonstrates that that mindset that she has developed over the years. And we were talking offline, but it hasn't always been that way. Um, where, you know, just even a couple of years ago, 2019, before she won, um, you know, her, her first major at the U S open, um, she was very shy, very reserved, um, in press conferences or, or on court interviews, um, so she really has developed into into this champion and really hit this champion's mentality. The other thing I would add, um, which I think is important for um, ten, tennis players of any level, is that I mean, if the if the number one, if if the best player in the tournament, if the if the champion um, can acknowledge these nerves, can feel these nerves, then it just demonstrates that that everybody goes through this at times. Um, but what's important is to be able to acknowledge it and then not feeling like you have to act on it, not feeling, okay, I feel nervous. Uh-oh, you know, this is going to be a, a tough day today. This is going to be really rough, but okay, what can we do about it? Yeah, right. Can we change up those expectations and remind ourselves that the opponent will feel nervous too? Can we, maybe, maybe it has something to do with shifting our, our game plan a little bit. Maybe we're a really aggressive player and we just, add a little bit more spin or a little bit more margin to our shots. Um, maybe we recommit to really moving our feet and really, you know, doing the little things right that ultimately can make that difference between winning and losing. Or we put, as we've talked about here before, we put a little note in our bag as a little reminder of some of these things we want to um, be focused on, knowing that we might be a little nervous and we might not have those things forefront at, at the forefront of our minds because of those nerves. So, um, I think, you know, those are a couple of strategies, um, you know, working with, with players, having some sort of reminder, recommitting to moving our feet a little bit more, recommitting to having a, you know, positive mindset, regardless of that, those sorts of nerves and a, a realistic mindset as well about our performance. Um, so, no, I, I, think, I think she has really developed into that champion. Um, and I think, I think that quote and some of these other ones really demonstrate that. I think you're you're right about the whole nerves thing. It's it's fine to accept it, accept that you're feeling nervous, but it doesn't mean you have to act that way, right? And and you gave some good strategies there. I think we discussed that theme a little bit as well when we talked about Novak Djokovic in an earlier episode about how he had doubting thoughts in the 2019 Wimbledon final against Federer. Yep. Yeah, and which showed you know hey he's human too. He's the he's the number one player in the world, but yet he still had doubts just like all of us so it's good for us to understand that these you know these great players are also human um, and we have seen Naomi Osaka really develop in front of us with these you know a couple more quotes here to share but it's it's she's developing sort of this almost like unflappable approach to how she plays 
especially in, in the big moments. And, and this next quote I want to share really shows that she gets the mental game, especially with respect to tennis. So this was, um, she is referring to something that she thought late in the first set uh, of the final after Jennifer Brady made a forehand error on a short ball, a ball that she wouldn't normally miss, uh, especially a player of her level. And so Osaka said, my mind just began thinking that she was either really nervous or really pressured, and I should capitalize on that by trying to win as many games as I could pace-wise. Because I feel like once a person loses the first set, doubts start to creep in. So that's when you really should put your foot on the gas. And I think there's a lot to learn there from how do we approach the beginning of the second set. I think, in my opinion, that is one of the critical moments of any match is is how you handle that. Whether you've won the first set or lost it, you want to make sure. Let's look at this scenario where we've won the first set. This is not a time to relax. This is a time, as Naomi Osaka said here, to begin to put some distance between you and the opponent. And you do that by, you know, by by keeping your foot on the gas, trying your best to get off to that big lead, because then what do you do to your opponent's mental game? Um, You know, depending on the level of the player, you may get them to mentally tap out if you get a 3-0 or a 4-0 lead. Kind of just finish the set. Uh, doesn't always happen, and but Osaka did get off to a four-zero lead that did shrink. But I think Brady said essentially it was a little too late. She started playing better. Um, so I'm curious what you thought of that that perspective, Josh. Yeah, um, I, we had an earlier episode, actually one of our first episodes, where we talked about stages of a set, stages of a match, um, and I I like that, that you're pointing out the. Um, this quote and the importance of the beginning of the second set, um, because I, I think it really can be a difference maker where after, a, you know, the, the first set ended, one player won it. Um, and then the match is going to go one of two directions. Either if one player, if, if that same player um, continues their lead, maybe goes up a break early on, the second set can be quick. If the, if it, the beginning of the second set is competitive if if the um, the player who lost the first set win is leading in the beginning of the second set, the match can you know can turn into a really close match. I would also point to um, a player that I think really capitalized on uh, the beginning of the second set um, in a bit of a different way, and uh, his name is John McEnroe. Um, oftentimes he would win a, a set, and maybe he would go down in the beginning of the second set, and all of a sudden there would be something, something would happen. He would have some sort of outburst or there would be a line call that he would argue. And all of a sudden he's arguing with the line judge and neither player has hit a ball for five minutes. And then what, what's, what happens that that opposing player's momentum that they drummed up from those first couple games of the second set is gone. And John McEnroe turns the set around and wins it. Um, so, you know, the, not that it would, it would always happened at that time, but there were definitely some, some key moments when it, when it did. So I think, I think a lot of players ought to recognize the beginning of the second set as a really pivotal time to either, if you want it, okay, let's keep our foot on the gas here. Let's really create some distance. Let's, you know, turn this, turn this match into um, more lopsided in the beginning of the set. Um, Or on the other, on the other side of things, if you lost it, okay, let's regroup. 
maybe we have to change up our strategy a little bit here, but you know, this is this beginning of the set is pivotal. So just wanted to add that in. Yeah. Yeah. And not that I don't, I don't think you're advocating that players manufacture uh, controversies, no. right. Um, but what did it do? It, it, it ended up, you know, putting some time in there to help break your opponent's momentum. So I think it's, your point is well taken that as a player, we have to be aware of um, these streaks or, you know, periods of momentum on one side of the court or the other. And, how do we maintain or how do we break those things um, you know, so that we can get, you know, either continue our lead or get back in, into the match is good. Um, so, yeah, I thought this was really well stated by Osaka about that approach to the second set. Um, I think that's something that we all can practice more. Um, the next quote that I had from um, Osaka was with re- the reason I wanted to talk about it was it's taking – essentially a thought that's not productive, not helping her win. And then she talks about how she was able to change it, basically erase it and come up with a new mindset, a new perspective that helped her get more focused in the moment, the present moment. So this was when she was playing Serena. We all know that's, you know, from Serena's serve is one of the best serves in the history of, of women's tennis, maybe all of tennis. And not easy to break. And so this is what Osaka said. She said, I had all these thoughts about how she's the best server. I'm probably not going to be able to break her. Then I told myself to erase those thoughts. And just to like, in a way, I was telling myself, I don't care because I can only play one point at a time. So essentially, she put Serena's reputation as a great server aside to say, I don't care about that. And let's just play one point at a time. And I think that that's a... um, bringing it back down to the present moment, bringing it back down to something you can control. Um, again, like if we talk about keeping our standards high, she decided to do that. She wasn't having these sort of expectations of, you know, this was a, would have been a negative expectation. I can't break her. You know, getting rid of that, having more realistic expectation of one point at a time. Now I can bring my best self to each point. That gives me a chance now to be able to to break her so curious about your thoughts on that one josh yeah um i I think a lot of players of all levels um have the tendency to build players up and almost give them the halo effect Mm. um and it's easy to do with somebody like serena williams who has 23 grand slam titles is arguably the greatest women's or just greatest tennis player of all time greatest you know up there with the greatest athletes of all time i would say um so it's very easy to put the halo on and say that you know she's there's no way i can break this serve she's going to be serving aces and sort of set these unrealistic standards or expectations rather um for her um and i think i think a lot of uh, players at the club level at all sorts of levels do this where maybe they see a player who has a higher utr or higher ranking than them. And they say, oh, you know, in order for me to play them, I'm going to have to play unbelievably well. I'm going to have to make all of my shots. Where in reality, everybody has those ebbs and flows. Everybody has their better days and their worst days. There are upsets all the time, as we know. So not hyping somebody up too much where you're putting them up on the pedestal to the extent that your self-belief is compromised, I would say, is is important where, okay, we want to respect everybody, but fear nobody, 
right? So there, yes, should that serve be respected? Absolutely. Um, but not, not hyping it up to the point where we don't believe that we have a chance to return it. Um, so I, 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 I would agree that that quote also demonstrates her maturity and um, having the right strategy really in terms of handling that, that sort of weapon on the other side of the net. Yeah, because we don't want to lose the match in the locker room. Right. We don't want to over-respect, and I think that's what you're, you're talking about. And, and many of us, you know, at where we are in our careers, um, you know, at the club level or even, you know, a more competitive level, we're not at the ATP or WTA level, it's easy to get sucked into that, that way of thinking. You know, I actually have a, a former doubles partner, um, a great friend of mine. I've never seen anybody better at believing he could beat anyone than this guy. And because of that, um, and, and he's not a big dude, he's, um, but he's tenacious. He's won gold balls at the national level and singles and doubles and mixed doubles. He had a fantastic college career. Um, and he just always has this mentality. It doesn't matter who he's playing, that he believes he can win and often does. And if you were to look at him physically, you wouldn't think that he is this great tennis player um, because he's, um, you know, I'm five, seven and three quarters. Maybe he's a little bit shorter than I am. Um, so he's certainly not a physically imposing guy, but, um, but mentally one of the best competitors I've ever encountered. Um, and I know in, in some of the matches that he and I played together, uh, it was his self-belief, I think, that, you know, became contagious and helped me play, play better. Um, so, you know, when we maybe transition to the men's side, I think that that is a theme that we want to get into a little bit is, is, is that, that self-belief piece. Um, but getting back to Osaka's quote, I think it's great to be able to, again, recognize an unproductive thought. You know, this, if we touch on our mindfulness episode, this is something that actually mindfulness can help us with is to notice what our thoughts are, to not necessarily have to be those thoughts, but hey, hmm, I just thought this. Is that really helpful? No, it's not. And she was able to transition it, you know, whether we call that thought stopping or thought replacement, whatever, she was able to transition herself from something not productive to something that enabled her to be more focused on what she needed to do. So I thought that was really fantastic on, on her part. Um, so Josh, should we dive in a little bit more onto the men's side? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so I think you might have more thoughts on, on this than me, but um, is there a particular men's match that um, – Maybe it was the final, but maybe it was another match that that you know struck you that had some good mental toughness themes to discuss. Um, I think there's a couple different ones. I mean, I think unfortunate. Unfortunately, I'm I'm a well, I'm a Rafa fan. I think Brian, you yes uh, are as well. <laughs> um, so his match against uh, Tsitsipas, um, I I think uh, was was an example of that where um, Rafa as we all know, is, you know, one of the greatest champions of the sport and was up two sets. And then in the third set, um, you know, was, was playing quite well in the tiebreaker up until a certain point 
when a couple of key mistakes um, caused this, this set to slip away. Um, and then Nadal lost the fourth set. And then the fifth set, um, got, they were both going back and forth, trading holds, um, one all, two all, three all, four all, five all. And then at five all, uh, Nadal played a, a sloppier game, I guess you could say, where I, I believe it was four unforced errors. And uh, in, in the five six game, Nadal did fight back. And it's a long, it was a long deuce game. Nadal was ahead in that game. But um, I think it goes to show that, you know, even, and we talked about, you know, not putting players on a pedestal, but n- not feeling like just because the top guys, we talk about the big three or on the women's side, Serena, Osaka recently, just because these players have won so many matches, they're, they're not unbeatable. They do have these blips that can be capitalized on. Um, and I think, you know, it, it goes to show that if you can hang with somebody long enough um, and Tsitsipas was able to do that, he hung tough through that tiebreak, ended up winning the tiebreak, you know, all took it to the fifth set. And then it's anybody's game at a certain point. So that, that's one, one thing I would, I would touch on. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, another thing, and it's not particularly from one, from one match, um, but uh, the, the Russian qualifier, Karatsev, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he had some, some great quotes. Perhaps we can put a, um, a link to his press conference um, that just shows, you know, his, his self-belief. And I mean, he's a qualifier. I believe this was his first grand slam main draw. Um, and the run that he had was just, I mean, to, to make it to a, a grand slam semi in his, uh, in his first, first grand slam tournament is, is just un- unbelievable. And, you know, he talks about him and his coach, you know, that, that self-belief piece, right. Just believing, um, every day that, you know, that you can, you can reach those highest levels and keeping working hard despite the challenges. I know he had some injuries and just, um, so that's another theme I would go for that, you know, having the faith we just talked about in our last episode, the faith, the trusting the process, right. Um, having faith that that process will pay off where you're working hard day in, day out. And maybe you're not always seeing the rewards. You don't always have, um, feedback like a, like a grand slam, um, to, to draw, but having faith that that work that you're putting in day in, day out is leading somewhere that it ultimately will pay dividends. So those, those are two things that definitely stand out. And I know we'll, we'll definitely touch on, on Djokovic and his victory and his title, which was very impressive considering all that he was dealing with. But uh, I'll start with, with those two, those two themes. I think within a doll matches, it, you know, this would be total speculation on our part. And so we're going to, I think, We'll preface that um, because we, you know, he didn't necessarily say anything in his press conference. I don't believe that indicated what he might have been thinking or why he played such a bad game, um, or even a, you know, his, his tiebreaker uh, as well in the third set didn't go the way he wanted to. Um, and as you said, he did fight back, but um, you know, the one thing he did mention was something about another sort of. Not bad luck, but uh, sort of a bad experience in Australia, and he's had some tough losses. Yep. There, Um, you know, the five-hour, fifty-three-minute final against Djokovic. um, You know, he hurt his back against Vavrinka that one year. Although Vavrinka was amazing and probably could have won anyway. Um, The loss to Federer in five sets in 2017. So he's had 
he's had some tough breaks, and I wonder if that part of that was weighing on his mind, especially as um, you know his back was bothering him earlier in the tournament. He did not use that as an excuse. He never does with these things, but it did appear that in that match, he was more fatigued than you would normally see. Like he looked a little bit more tired, where Sisipas was like amazingly energized. And you know, as the day that we're recording this particular uh, episode, you know, we learned that Nadal is pulled out of a, you know, a tournament, um, citing the back as uh, still being problematic. And as Josh, you pointed out, he's got to save himself for the the quest for twenty one at Roland Garros. Absolutely. So, so we don't know really what happened with with Nadal there, but again, it's um, yeah, the top players they can also have these blips, and CC Boss was able to, you know, at least mentally keep himself in the match long enough, um, and he was able to 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 extract a win, in the end. So I thought that was good. Um, you know, Karatsev, I think that is an amazing run. We don't we, we occasionally we'll see something like this. And I was watching one of his matches. I think he was playing, you know, Felix Auger-Alessiam and uh, Felix is up two sets of love. And that's when I turned it off <laughs> <laughs> and I wake up the next day. And I was sort of like, what? Because he didn't look that great. He was making a ton of mistakes. Felix looked awesome and looked like a pretty routine match. And obviously things changed. Um, but I would love to talk about Medvedev and Djokovic because it's they had a little bit sort of different runs to the final. Medvedev looked like the best player in the world by far, um, the way he was playing, beating everyone, hitting some like that. I don't know if you saw that, Josh, that backhand down the line against Tsitsipas. Oh, yeah. Uh, what an amazing shot, right? And, um, and And at a clutch moment, too, because he needed that to, to – essentially win win the match um the game the next game i think and um djokovic maybe a little bit more of a struggle there having some injury issues his body not feeling great but in the end it seemed like same old story um djokovic you know difficult first set but pretty routine after that and it just if we bring it back to that theme that we were you brought up earlier but i, I think is really important here is self-belief um, in a final. And this isn't Medvedev's first, right? He played in the U.S. Open final against Nadal. So he's, he's played in, final, in a final before. But did he have enough self-belief to beat, at the time, eight-time champion Novak Djokovic, you know, in a place that he doesn't often lose? And you'd have to say the evidence would suggest that he didn't believe enough in that match. Um, and as the match went on, you know, his composure uh, corrupted a bit. You know, not like he went into a meltdown or anything, but he certainly wasn't the same player he had been in his previous matches, really the past few months as well. And, one, a, you know, a study on mental toughness that I know we've cited before in this podcast talked about some of the important attributes that elite athletes believe is part of mental toughness. And one of them is this unshakable, and that's the key word, unshakable self-belief in your ability to win and in your ability to achieve your goals. And 
tennis obviously is extremely difficult sport mentally. It does challenge your self-belief constantly. And I'm wondering if Medvedev's belief was just shaken enough in that match to make a difference. It, se- it seemed like it. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, Djokovic at, at the time had eight Australian Open titles. Um, the other thing is he was 8-0 in Australian Open finals. Um, so I think to me it seems like the first set was sort of the turning point where after that first set, Medvedev maybe didn't believe that he could come back and that he could still hang with Djokovic. I mean, I think what Djokovic does so well is the defense he's, that he's able to play where, I mean, among, among other things, but um, he's able to essentially neutralize Med- some of Medvedev's biggest weapons, like his serve, like his offense or the way that he covers the court where those biggest weapons end up becoming um, not, not as effective. Um, so to me, it was really that first set, which I believe was seven, five. And then after that, it seemed like the, the self-belief, you know, went away. And I think it's also tough for players to make that breakthrough and, and win that first slam, especially when they've been in a couple finals before. Um, we saw it with Agassi, we saw it with Andy Murray. I know there are plenty of other examples as well um, where maybe they've been in that position a few times, um, but it, it can be tough to make that breakthrough, especially on the men's side right now, how we, you know, the, the big three, Federer, Nadal, and, and Djokovic are just so dominant, have just put so much space between themselves and everybody else. Um, so I think, especially when you're facing one of them in a final, it's uh, couldn't couldn't be tougher. And Medvedev now has faced Nadal and Djokovic in in finals. I mean, one one other thing I'd add is um, I was talking to a friend during the U.S. Open final, which was um, the men's final between um, Team and Zverev, and he said that you know we really have taken taken it for granted how well the big three handle these, these moments, how well they handle the finals, how well they're able to bring out their best tennis, despite the nerves of playing in a final. And when we saw team and Zverev, you know, struggling with their nerves, um, struggling with their serves as well. Um, that I, I think that that demonstrated it. And I think, you know, for Medvedev to be in that high pressure moment against somebody like Djokovic, who has been there time and time again, especially in the Australian open, which is, um, the tournament he's had the most success. I think it's a challenging, a very challenging situation. And I think it showed, especially after that first set when he lost it, I think it was a very tough uh, uphill battle from there. Yeah. I mean, Djokovic, as you've mentioned, and he's great at taking his opponent's weapons away. Yep. And it's almost like when he does that, he more or less establishes resonance in your head and it's hard to get him out. Because you, you don't know what to do. And he, he breaks you mentally by doing that. Um, I mean, there was a period there, maybe a couple of years, where I thought he was completely in Nadal's head. Nadal had no idea what to do against him. And that was even coming out in clay court matches. He, he couldn't deal with it. Um, and so I think there's a good lesson there as well, is how do we, as tennis players, when we look at our opponent, how do we take a, our opponent's best part of their game away um, because very often if, if you do take the best part of their game away it affects their mental game as well um, we were talking before we started to record that 
Medvedev had been um, averaging something like three to four aces per set. And Djokovic completely took that away. He wasn't getting any free points off the serve there. Um, and so when you're playing somebody like that, it obviously becomes very frustrating. That builds up. And then that's where, if we're not careful, we lose the composure. Um, you know, I wonder if, if, let's say, Josh, we could have consulted with, with Daniel before the match. You know, could we have prepared him for some of those things? Like, to look, he, you know what? You're not going to, don't expect to get a lot of aces today, right? Like, in terms of keeping some expectations lower, realistic. Um, expect the points to need to be longer against him. Um, how do we take some of the things that he does really well away? Or how do we, you know, tap into what frustrates Novak? Because, you know, it's not like we, that, that hasn't happened before, right? There are ways to do it. Um, you know, so would some of that maybe have helped uh, a player like Daniel Medvedev deal with that? Maybe not. Maybe. Who knows? Um, it just didn't seem like he was really mentally ready to have some of that stuff go away because we would expect, I think, like you were saying, a player of his caliber to not go away after one set in a major final. Right? If we go back to like even what Naomi Osaka said, I don't know. Again, we're speculating maybe a bit, but did we see him fight his hardest in that final? Not sure. Maybe credit to Djokovic for, for you know, shattering his fortress of mental toughness. Um, but would we have expected more of a fight out of a Federer or Nadal after our a one-set deficit? Yeah, I don't think we would have seen either of those players capitulate in the same way. Um, so that's something, I guess, you know, for him to go back and think about as, as an experience. He'll be back. His game is way too good. Um, you know, the, the, some of the shots he hits are ridiculously good. I don't know that you could teach anybody to play the way he does, um, but it's, it's, it's a unique game. It's a cool game to watch. We definitely want to see him him back, um, but it really just speaks to how good those top three guys are. Yeah, when Murray was up there, the four, uh, because you know that U.S. Open final, as you mentioned, and, and I remember we had Bill Tim on. Uh, he, you know, he found it to be, I think, an embarrassing display for the, those younger players to play that badly in uh, in a major final, and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good tennis. Um, it was certainly dramatic at the end, <laughs> um, but maybe not the kind of drama we, we want to see. No, sometimes people will, I'll, I'll talk about that match and people will say, oh, what a, what a great match. You know, it was five sets, went to a fifth set tie break. And I, I, I just say, I, I couldn't disagree more that, that <laughs> the quality of the match was t- tough to watch at, at moments, honestly. Um, I mean, obviously easier for us to say from our, um, the comfort of our homes than actually being out there, uh, you know, an Arthur Ashe in a fifth set of a, of a Grand Slam final. But, but no, I, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think it shows that, like, again, I think it shows how impressive what, what uh, the big three have done um, based on how everybody else or how people generally handle those moments. Um, the other thing I'd say as it relates to Medvedev is I was surprised by it because of, um, his first Grand Slam final, when he played Nadal, Nadal won those first two sets and uh, Medvedev came roaring back, winning the third and fourth and 
playing very competitive fifth set. So, um, yeah. no, I, Although, I think... In that match, didn't you also have the feeling at some points Medvedev wasn't really playing great, but it was like just ripping shots. They happened to go in and he kind of locked his way into winning like the third set. And uh, then he finds himself in the fifth, right. sort of That's, mentally yeah. back into it. It was a good fifth set, but yeah. Um, you're right. I think he took a different approach when he went down those two sets to Nadal than he did against Djokovic. And you know what? Maybe it's just all credit to Djokovic for how well he destroyed Daniel's game. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially I think the the other thing to, to talk about with Djokovic is earlier in the tournament, it, it was it was tough to imagine him winning it. Yeah. I mean, yes, he's won now nine times you know it was eight times it was eight times then um but he had a very significant uh injury i believe it was a muscle tear during his match against taylor fritz which won five sets um to to the point where he wasn't he even said after the match i'm not even sure if i'm gonna be able to walk on court in the next match so no i mean he to you know the way that he was able to get his body and mind to the place where he could compete and ultimately win the tournament by winning however many more matches were after that, I think four, four or so, four or five matches after that, um, as, as cannot be understated, um, to, to be able to withstand an injury like that and get yourself to a place where you can still win a, a grand slam is very, very impressive. Yeah. And, you know, much as we talk about Nadal winning, you know, 13 Roland Garros and, and so forth, is there really anything stopping Djokovic from, you know, getting to similar numbers with his Australian Open titles? Right, right. Especially now that there's no more uh, line judges. So, not, not <laughs> so that he won't be getting tossed for that anymore, right? Um, yeah, that, that was interesting. And I think it... Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, now there's really no challenge system and, uh, right. um, yeah, that, that's, that's perhaps a topic for another, another episode, but, um, yeah. yeah, overall, I think, um, it was a good tournament. There were definitely some great moments to watch, you know, especially from a, uh, mental toughness and, and sports psych perspective, uh, a lot more things that went on in that event than, you know, we got to today, but, um, I, I think, um, you know, we've come to uh, a good, probably good conclusion with that. Or any other things in the men's side that you wanted to go over, Josh? Um, not really. I mean, I think Rublev um, is is definitely a player to to look out for. Um, I think the way that he the way that he competes. I know he was, I think, struggling physically when he played Medvedev, and that wasn't his best performance. He looked unstoppable before that. Um, I, I, I guess one thing I would add in, it's not particular to the men's or the women's side. It's just the, the tournament in general. Um, and we didn't mention this. A lot of the players, I think 70 something players before the tournament were in quarantine for, um, what was it? 10 days, 10 to, was it 10, 10 or 14, 14, 14 days. Yeah. Um, they had the flight and somebody on the flight had COVID and, um, had to quarantine, change, very much changing up their rhythm. Did not Many players didn't get the type of training that yeah. they would generally get for a Grand Slam. Um, so I, I just think, you know, I'm very happy to see um, that, you know, we're, we're despite all, despite 
the the COVID situation, despite players, so many players being in quarantine before the tournament, still being able to have a very high quality event. And also to, uh, just from a fan's perspective, great to see, um, you know, a somewhat full crowd. Um, and hopefully we can get there um, in the U.S. and, you know, elsewhere around the world. I think it's a testament to how Australia has handled um COVID and everything, but no, definitely from a sports psychology perspective, I think a lot of important themes um, that we touched on um, both on the men's end on the women's side, um, really liked a lot of those quotes that you brought up, Brian. Um, and yeah, definitely a, a fascinating uh, tournament. And uh, I think the next time when we do the, uh, the French open recap in a few months, uh, we'll see what happens with Rafa. We'll see what happens with uh, Sviantec, our, our last our last recap before this, the French Open recap, where we talked about both of those champions. Um, I, I think they, as we talked about then, they have a lot in common, um, despite their age difference, despite you know some of the other differences. But in terms of the mental side, in terms of their mentality, um, definitely a lot in common. So uh, definitely um, eagerly looking forward to that uh, tournament as well. Yeah, it should be good. Um, you know, spring season leading into leading into Roland Garros. So great. Well, that's our show for today, everyone. Thank you for listening. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, which also includes YouTube, so that you can be notified of new episodes. You can check out our Instagram page, which also has new episode notifications. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.